handouts uh, scattered around on the, the table. You'll find it really useful to have one of those. If you have a Bible with you, that will be doubly uh, useful. Um, this is the second in a five-session series I'm doing on the book of Revelation. And uh, I know a number of you weren't, here, weren't able to be here last week, so a very quick recap on some of the material I covered. I have put some of last week's handouts around as well, so if you weren't here, you might want to pick one of those up. If you still haven't got one, then I can either email it to you or you can pick one up uh, at the end. Just very quickly, just to lay the groundwork, um, I described trying to understand Revelation as a bit like trying to explain the rules of cricket to an American baseball fan, (laughs) or trying to do a Rubik's Cube if you're not really into puzzles. It just seems so confusing and so difficult uh, to understand. But I pointed out that the key to understanding Revelation is to understand what it is, the context in which it was written, and if we can unlock those two things, then we can get to grips with the book. It's a letter, it's a piece of prophecy, but above all else, it's apocalyptic. It's written in vivid images, vivid symbols, most of which are not meant to be taken literally. And if we see it in the context of the Bible as a whole, which helps us to understand those symbols, then that will take us a long way down the path to getting to grips with Revelation. It was written around 90 AD by John, probably John the Apostle. John was in exile because of persecution. The Emperor Domitian had started to persecute Christians. John, as an old man, was spared death but was sent to exile. From there, he wrote this letter, this prophecy, this piece of apocalyptic literature to encourage the churches in the province of Asia as they faced persecution. So if we're going to understand it, very quickly we need to take it seriously, not literally. See it as showing patterns rather than specifics. I don't think the key is identifying specific historical events in Revelation. And also read it as part of the Bible, not in isolation. And that's really what I want to unpack for you this evening by looking at some of the the chapters in the middle of the book. I explained last week that one of the ways to understand Revelation is it, it, it contains seven sets of seven. Seven visions, and each of those have seven symbols. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven plagues, seven bowls, seven voices, seven promises. We're going to look at two of those sevens this evening in the middle of the book, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, and try and unpack what we think they might mean. Now, I'm going to read some extracts from those chapters. We won't read them all because it will take far, far too long, but I just want to give you a flavor of what it sounds like when we read it. So I'm going to start with Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1, and just read that verse, and then we'll jump down to chapter 6. Okay, Revelation 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And if we jump down to chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. 
I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And then just jump over down to chapter 8 and verse 6, and we'll read a bit of the seven trumpets. Then the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. And then just two final verses, which kind of help put it into context. Chapter 11, and verses 15 to 16. The seventh trumpet, oh, sorry, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. So what's that all about, you might ask? Well, hopefully I can unpack something of that for you. First of all, let me just say this, that... um, and I mentioned this right at the end, you have all these sevens recurring in Revelation, and that gives you a clue that they're probably not meant to be taken literally. The number seven always symbolizes God is at work. It's based on the creation story that God created the world in seven days, and including the day of rest he had on the seventh day. Interesting, the Bible recognizes work and rest as together. Rest is still work. And so the seven symbolizes God is at work. And that's a big question people ask, isn't it? Where is God in these days? Many people in Cumbria have been asking that question over the past two weeks and many people through our nation. Where is God? Why is God not at work? Revelation draws back the curtain and reveals to us a God who is at work despite the way that evil confronts us in the world today. So the seven always symbolizes God is at work. And then just the other thing to mention by means of introduction is that these two visions, the seals and the trumpets, are not one after the other, even though they might seem like that in the way they're laid out. They're actually, they don't run chronologically, they run parallel to each other. And this is the way Revelation works. Revelation is not a chronological uh, outline of history. It's not pointing towards a list of events that will happen in the future. Revelation is a series of visions which run parallel, which overlap, which look at things from a different perspective, like a prism. 
And these two visions work in that way. They run parallel with one another, shedding light on different aspects of why the world is like it is and how things will pan out in the light of this. I put there in the middle of uh, the first sheet a little kind of table that in just eight words sums up six chapters of Revelation. The seven seals looks at life from the perspective of the church and how this evil that is going on in the world affects the church. The aim of what is happening is to show the genuineness of people who follow Jesus. And the message that comes through it is that God protects his people. The seven trumpets runs parallel but looks at things from the perspective of the world. The aim is to lead people to turn back to God, to repent. And the thrust of the message is a warning, a very sober warning, that people need to repent and to turn to God. So there's parallel and overlap in these visions. The things that they describe affect everyone, but the two visions function in different ways. One is a call to the church. One is a call to the world. One promises protection. The other issues a warning. And that's the way I want to unpack these two visions for you this evening. So first of all, let's think about the seven seals, which reveal to us the way these things impact upon the church. Let's ask a very basic question first of all, though. What were seals used for? Well, if you can think, in those days, they didn't have pads of paper. They used to write things on parchment scrolls, which were a bit cumbersome. And so they had to be rolled up if they wanted to be taken anywhere. And so seals were used in a very simple, practical way to enclose what was written in the scrolls. And uh, there's just an example of that, and and you don't necessarily need to turn to it, but the example I put there is Esther 8, verse 8. Uh, Way back in the Old Testament, it says this, Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seem best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So sealing was a way of keeping the information enclosed, making sure that only those whose eyes it was for were able to read it. They didn't want things to be read by someone who didn't have any right to read them. I guess it's an ancient version of passwords that we now use on the internet. You know, passwords, supposedly, uh, protect your information from other people who haven't got the right to read it, to read it. Now, we all know that it's a great idea in theory, but it doesn't always work in practice. I've been subject to internet fraud. I've had my credit card pinched, and I know I'm not the only one, because the password somehow got broken. But that's the aim of seals. Seals were for protection, to keep important information revealed. So what it's saying is, in breaking the seals something important is going to be revealed. And it's going to be revealed not just to one person, but it's going to be revealed to all of us. So that's where the seven seals are coming from. They're revealing important information. And secondly, seals were used to guarantee the the authenticity of something or someone. You know, if you go into a shop and buy something... um, They often have these little seals on them, you know, kind of software and things like that. They have these little silver seals on them as a sign of genuineness. Seals are a sign of genuineness. Uh, If you go to India, you buy a bottle of water. (laughs) Tim told me this one. 
piece of advice, always make sure that the cap is sealed because there's a roaring trade in picking up bottles, filling them with any old water and selling them as genuine bottled water when actually they're not. Always check the seal. The trouble is they're getting very clever now and they're even working out how to put seals on them. But seals are supposed to be a sign of genuineness. Sign of genuineness. We just had a government uh, elected, and one of the first things ministers had to do was to pick up the seals of office, the genuine, that made their statements genuine. Now, there's a really interesting little spiritual twist on this. Um, Ephesians 1 and verse 13 to 14. Let me just read those verses to you, because this will help to make it a little bit more uh, sensible. Uh, Ephesians 1 and verses 13 to 14. A little kind of different aspect on this. This is what Paul says. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Isn't that interesting? God has sealed us. There's a seal on each one of us that marks us out as authentic, as genuine believers. And that seal is the Holy Spirit. Paul says elsewhere in Romans, the thing that makes us a Christian is our possession of the Holy Spirit, my paraphrase there. That's what makes us, if somebody doesn't have the Holy Spirit, it says they are not in Christ. So the Holy Spirit is like a seal on our lives, guaranteeing our authenticity as followers of Jesus, guaranteeing those privileges that we enjoy. So seals then enclose information and reveal authenticity. Here in Revelation, the vision tells us that the seals are broken. But who breaks the seals? Well, there's only one person who can break the seals. Chapter 5, verse 2, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? No one in heaven or on earth could open the scroll or even look inside. But then it tells us, one of the elders said, see the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So Jesus is the only authentic one who can break the seals and reveal what they enclose. So what it's saying is these visions are not just going to reveal for us events that will take place. They're also going to reveal the meaning of them because of Jesus opening the seals for us as the genuine son of God. So what are these seals? Well, there are seven of them. The first four are, uh, or contain these very uh, interesting characters, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You may have heard of them in kind of uh, imagery, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, they go out, and as they go out, they unleash uh, different characteristics into the world. Now, these horsemen, uh, let me just give you the background again here. In, in the, these ancient times, horse, horses were signs of authority. You know, if you rode a horse, you were a person of authority and power. Ordinary people rode donkeys. Important people rode horses. So horses were a sign of power and authority. In fact, some people think that behind John's imagery here of using these horsemen 
is what were called the Parthian warriors. The Parthians were mighty warriors in Roman times who went out into battle and were, were never defeated as far as the historical records tell us. Maybe that was on his mind. But they always rode white horses. And many people think that's what lies behind the first horseman who is riding a white horse. And as he goes out, this horseman, he unleashes conquest. He's someone of power and authority. And therefore, everywhere he goes, he conquers. And, you know, that would have been very real to those people because they were under oppression by the Roman Empire. They felt like they had been conquered. And wherever conquest goes, there's always humiliation and oppression. And that's how the church felt when John wrote these words. The church felt oppressed and humiliated. And throughout history, that pattern has been revealed again and again. Conquest leads to oppression and humiliation. So that's the first thing, conquest. Second thing, strife, violence and antagonism. There's a little phrase there in, uh, in these verses that says, um, where is it, chapter 6 and verse 4, that its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. It's not just talking about strife in battle, it's talking about strife in human relationships where people turn against one another. And again, throughout history, we see that happening, don't we? We don't just see strife in battles and wars, we see it in humanity, in relationships. Then the next horseman unleashes scarcity. In those verses, there's pictures of famine, of rationing, of corruption, as even basic foodstuffs become scarce. And sadly, again, that's a pattern that is repeated throughout history and is seen in many places today. And let's be honest about it, this will be one of the biggest challenges in the future, is as resources become more and more scarce, as the population of the world continues to increase, this will be one of the biggest challenges for the future of humanity, is how do the resources go around? And we have this picture in Revelation of a scarcity of resources. And then that culminates in death, the pale rider. The, pale, the Greek word for pale is chloros, from which we get the, Greek, the word chlorine. Chlorine makes things pale, doesn't it? It stains things. It's a picture of death. And it describes there um, a fourth of the earth being killed. Again, that's not meant to be taken literally. It's simply to convey this image that death is widespread. That includes all kinds of things, all kinds of ways in which death occurs. Then seals five and six unleash persecution that was specific to the church at this time as persecution was taking place and again i mentioned this last week each year uh, today in our generation 170,000 christians die for their faith every year this is still present in our world today persecution takes place openly especially recently and then finally you have cataclysmic events that's what uh, trumpet six unleashes and it seems as though the world is about to end. But again, we're working with symbolism here. Let me just pick out one point from that. Um, chapter 6 and verse 12 says, I watched as the sixth seal was opened. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. That sounds pretty cataclysmic. Sounds like the end of the world. But can I just show you something? from the book of Acts, and uh, chapter, 
chapter 2, I think. It, oh, is it chapter 6? I'm going to find it now. No, it's not chapter 6. It's chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 20. Listen to what it says. It says, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Do you notice the imagery is the same there? But you know, that wasn't the end of the world. When that prophecy was given, and Peter said, this prophecy is being fulfilled now, what happened was the Holy Spirit came on the church. God was at work. And so these things are symbols, again, of God at work. God doing something new, something different. And then we have the final seal. And it's really interesting what happens. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Something dramatic happens. Silence. It's as though something is about to come to an end and there's nothing more to say. And silence happens. It's very rare to hear silence in our world today, isn't it? I'm being a bit of an old fogey now, but... When I see these funerals and these rounds of applause, I don't like it. It's as though we just don't know how to be quiet sometimes and just to be quiet in awe and in recognition. That we've got to make a noise somehow. And I understand why some people prefer it, but I don't like it. Because it reminds me that we just don't know how to be quiet in our world today. And as these seals unleash these characteristics on our world, and as everything comes to fruition... Revelation tells us there is silence, silence and awe at what is taking place and what is about to happen. But remember, this is to the church. And the question is is this, what do we do in the silence? What do we do in the silence? What is the church called to do? This silence is like a gap. It says half an hour. Again, don't take that literally. It simply means a period of time before the end actually comes. What do we do? If these seals are revealing important information about what is taking place, if these seals are demonstrating the authenticity of believers' faith, what do we do? There's an amazing picture here in chapter 6 and verses 9 to 11. I'll come back to that in a minute, but let me just read this. Did you notice this phrase when we read it? When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord? How long until you avenge our blood? Isn't that a very vivid picture? The souls of those who had been slain the lamb was slain. Now it's saying those have been slain. So it's re- they're obviously related to Jesus because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. You see, when John wrote this, this was very real. People had died for no other reason than the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They'd lost their lives. They'd experienced physical death. But John says they were under the altar. Altar, symbol of sacrifice. Symbol of Jesus' sacrifice. And what he's saying is, these saints may have lost their physical lives, but they have been protected in death by the sacrifice of Jesus. 
They died because of the word of God and the testimony they'd maintained. Exactly what John says in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I'm on the, on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. These people were being persecuted for no other reason than their willingness to submit their lives to the word of God and to keep on proclaiming the testimony of Jesus. You see, that's always been the symbol of the authenticity of people's commitment, their willingness to keep on proclaiming the word of God, to keep on giving testimony to Jesus. Can I just leave that with you as a a thought to ponder? Do our lives reflect the word of God and the testimony of Jesus? That's what we're called to do as Christians. That is the absolute basic, to keep proclaiming the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But how might these seals encourage us? This all seems very grim, doesn't it? Well, two, two things. We're protected by our relationship with Christ. Now, clearly this isn't physical protection because these saints had died. They'd been slain for their faith. But the truth here is that Christians, whilst they may not be protected from pain and hardship and bad things and even death itself, our relationship with Christ protects us from judgment and secures our eternity. And that was so important for those first century Christians to hear. This is not some shallow, easy message, but this is the real message of the authenticity of the gospel that is founded on Jesus. And that message is still true for us. Bad things happen to us. We know that. But they make us human. And whilst Christians are not always healed, whilst Christians are not always protected from financial problems, whilst Christians are not always given safety, What they are protected for is eternity. And what this book calls us to is to set our sights not just on the world, but on heaven. And to experience the protection of eternity that Jesus gives us as a result of his death on the cross. So that's an encouragement. That's the way the seals encourage us. To remind us we're protected by our relationship with Christ. But they also encourage us to do something. We are called to pray for the world. Do you know, notice what happens at this time of silence in chapter 8? <clears throat> it says there in verse 3 to 5, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. These things happen in response to the prayers of the saints. If you doubt that prayer can make a difference to the world in which we live, then this verse comes as an encouragement to us. It says that prayer makes a difference. The breaking open of the seals and the authenticity of our faith calls us to pray for the world as we've been doing this evening. And this is one of the ways in which our faith is shown to be genuine. So often revelation is used as a basis to condemn people, to ignore people, to sit back and wait for the end of the world. But revelation calls us to action. It reminds us that the end is near, but it tells us that whilst there is time, We are called to pray for our world. And the seals encourage us to do that. As the seventh seal is broken open, it's a reminder the end is near. But it's a reminder too that as we pray, we can make a difference to the world's future and to people's future. 
So that's the message for the church that the seven seals reveals. It calls us to remind ourselves we are protected by our relationship with Christ and we are called to pray for the world. Seven trumpets, the way things impact upon the world. Just again, something very simple, basic. What were trumpets used for? Well, trumpets were used to warn that something was about to happen. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of Joshua? God told Joshua to march around the walls of Jericho for six days. On the seventh day, it's that number seven again, they were told to march around seven times, the number seven again, and they were told to blow their trumpets. Now, I used to think that maybe it was the sound waves from the trumpets that made the walls fall down, but actually that wasn't what happened. The trumpets were a warning. They were a warning. Something's about to happen. They were a warning. God is at work. God is about to do something that is going to be of enormous significance. So trumpets were always used as warning. And also they used as warning in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16, which is one of the, the classic passages on the return of the Lord, says this, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The trumpet signifies warning. God's about to break into history. You need to do something in response to it. So trumpets are always warnings in the Bible, always warnings. God is at work. He is going to do something. And so the trumpets in Revelation and the way that they, they unpack things in these seven trumpets are a wake-up call to the world, a warning saying, God's about to do something, you need to respond. Again, these trumpets present us with a very graphic image. Um, they, they remind us that sin affects the natural world and they're very graphically illustrated here. This passage actually I think provides a pretty good basis for Christians engaging in some of the ecological issues that we face today. So, for example, the first trumpet talks about the way the earth will be affected. And a very graphic image here of hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down upon the earth. And the Americans who interpret this literally see that as, uh, as recording when the nuclear bomb, the first nuclear bomb was dropped. That that's the only way they can explain how hail and fire could be mixed with blood. They see that as the fallout from the nuclear weapons, and therefore that marks the beginning of that particular period. Again, I'm not sure we need to take it that literally. It's rather a, a very graphic way of showing the way that things affect the earth and the way our, resource, our use of resources has had such a devastating effect on the earth. Second trumpet records what happens in the sea. It talks about like a huge mountain being thrown into the sea. Interesting little observation here. Uh, only 10 years earlier, Vesuvius had erupted and destroyed uh, on Pompeii. And some people think that John may have heard of that, uh, may even have witnessed it. And maybe that was on his mind when he talked about a mountain being hurled into the sea. Maybe we don't really know. But nevertheless, again, it's talking about the sea being affected. Maybe there's an image here. BP oil rig. Look at the devastation that has caused to the sea. Now, I'm not saying that's a literal interpretation. It's just a general outworking that when we misuse resources, it has an effect on our creation. Next uh, trumpet, the third trumpet, shows the effect on water. It talks about rivers being polluted. 
And again, many specific examples of that have been worked out in history. And then finally, it talks about darkness uh, in the heavens, a symbol of death. They're all reflections here of the plagues of Egypt, by the way, and the way that that affects creation. Then the next couple of trumpets unleash torment, (laughs) trumpet five, um, and and it just shows, and it it gives this very graphic picture of where, a point where life becomes almost unbearable. Chapter nine, verse six, during those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. I mean, again, very graphic, but actually that's life for some people, you know? Again, when, when, I, when I go to India and I see the grinding poverty in which people live, the things they have to do to earn enough money just to feed themselves for a day, and it always, I always think, I think, what must it be like to do that day in, day out? What must it be like never to have a holiday? What must it be like never to have a day off just to do that day in, day out, just to earn enough to feed yourself and your family? It would be very easy to feel, is life really worth living in those circumstances? And then the final, uh, trumpet six leads to death. It's, um, again, it reveals death not just through wars, but through illness, through persecution, through the misuse of resources. And then finally, trumpet seven. And trumpet seven, just like trumpet, the seal seven, begins to usher in the end. But I want you to notice a difference here. And we're almost there now. This trumpet, the seals, let, the seventh seal led to silence. The seventh trumpet leads to, verse 15 of chapter 11, loud voices in heaven, which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The final trumpet leads to loud voices proclaiming the end of this sin-scarred world and ushering in a new world transformed by the reign of Christ. When God is revealed, it doesn't lead to silence it leads to worship. I just want to finish with this verse. The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. What do the trumpets call the world to? They call the world to repentance. These visions make grim reading, but they paint a picture of the reality of life in the world. Why does God allow these terrible things to happen is the question we're often posed. C.S. Lewis uses the image of God taking a megaphone to the world and pain is his megaphone of calling the world to himself. Well, that's what Revelation does. Revelation calls people to experience God's grace, to experience what it means to have their lives changed. Chapter 9, verse 20 says, The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. That tells us why God was doing these things. He was calling people to repentance, to experience his grace. Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 3 that God wants to draw everyone to repentance. God is not a God who is ready to unleash judgment without calling people to repentance. God's heart is always for people to experience repentance. These visions remind us the trumpets are still sounding in warning, but also in invitation. I've been thinking, how does this work today? Well, honestly, I think this, you know the financial crisis we've gone through and we're still going through? I just wonder if that is a trumpet call to the world, a trumpet call to the West at least. 
that if we put our trust in money, in economic systems, in materialism, then we will not discover a relationship with God. And maybe that is an example today of a trumpet calling people to a different way of life. So these things call people to change, to repent. And also they call people to worship. It leads to worship. There's a time coming when everyone will worship Christ. Some people say to me, never me. You'll never get me on my knees worshiping Christ. Revelation says there's a time coming when everyone will worship Christ. You will either be one of the 24 elders, which is the whole church of God, 12 tribes, 12 disciples, 12 times 2 is 24. 24 symbolizes the whole church of God. Whether you're part of the whole church of God who willingly fall and worship him, or whether you're one of those who realizes they made a humongous mistake and that they got it wrong in the end, and I'll talk about that more next week, whatever, we're all called to worship Christ. Let me leave you with this thought as we come to an end. Chapter 11, verse 15 says, The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Becomes, that means changes. God invites us to become part of that process of change. We live in the kingdom of the world, right? This world is the kingdom of the world. Jesus describes Satan as the prince of this world. Therefore, we live in the kingdom of this world. But we yearn for this world to be the kingdom of the Lord. And we can be part of this. We can be part of this process of allowing God to change us and through us to change our communities and to change our world. And we can begin to make that happen now. We can begin the process of changing the kingdom of the world so that it becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, it won't be seen in all its fullness till Jesus returns. But that vision should inspire us to work in our world today so that more and more people will see God at work in this world and that we begin the process of changing the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ in the knowledge that he will reign forever and ever. So that's what I want to leave you with this evening. This is hard work sometimes, this book. It really is. But when you grapple with it, you get these little nuggets. And I was really excited by that this week. I'd never noticed that verse before. Let me leave that verse with you. The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ And he will reign forever and ever. As you go out into the world, into your workplaces, into your schools, into your colleges, go with that in mind. You're stepping into the kingdom of the world. But ask yourself that question. How can I be part of making this place the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ? Let's pray together.